Well, welcome everyone to the study of the evening. I'm, I'm very glad you're here to study with me. I can probably already tell that my voice sounds a little bit weak. And uh, it seems like every Wednesday I speak, I have people in town that I'm doing training for or something, and I just flat run out of words. But I definitely have enough words to speak on, on the Bible tonight. Um, anytime I speak, anytime we, we look at the word, you know, you treat it as as meat, as food, and I just kind of have this uh, this feeling that when those words, even though everything is inspired, when those words are coming out of Jesus' mouth, it's like, a, it's like a power bar with a side of vitamins. There's just more to it. And uh, it's, it's always my prayer that um, we're going to get the nutrients out of that that we're supposed to, and there's, there's certainly a lot to it. <clears throat> so we'll... Uh, We'll begin by just diving in and, and uh, reading our text here. As Justin said, it's Matthew 25 tonight, and starting in, uh, in verse 1 here. And all of these, these ending chapters are, are pretty big and have good break points. Uh, tonight's text, we've got two really familiar parables, and then um, another very familiar section where Jesus is describing the judgment and that did not seem like a break point to me. They just go together perfectly. So we've got the whole chapter in here, and it's really not that long. Um, but it's, it's just three distinct sections that I think go along perfectly. So if you want to follow along with me, I have everything on the board here. A um, little bit jammed together. tried to make it big, but this is out of the, the New King James Version. So uh, feel free to read along in your Bible or your device. <clears throat> and Jesus says, Then the kingdom of heaven shall be likened to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Now five of them were wise and five were foolish. Those who were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. But while the bridegroom was delayed, they all slumbered and slept. At midnight, a cry was heard, Behold, the bridegroom is coming. Go out to meet him. Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, No, lest there should not be enough for us and you, but rather go to those who sell and buy for yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding, and the door was shut. Now, first of all, Excuse me. This made more sense to me when I learned a little bit about the traditions of a wedding party at that time. And this is not really that important to know, but it did help, um, it did help to kind of clear it up. You can expect that you would be confused by an analogy if you don't understand the analogy. It just goes with any analogy. So these ten virgins here are not ten potential brides that the groom will be choosing from which for some reason is what I used to think this was referring to. But apparently it was the thing back then for the groom to show up at an unexpected time and the bridal party is supposed to be ready because they knew he was coming. The bride isn't even really mentioned here. These these ten being virgins is not really relevant either, uh, but young ladies to attend as bridesmaids, they might not have been part of the party if they were married and Uh, just simply due to relationship norms of the time. So there were apparently ten, typically, and lamps were a normal part of this ceremony. 
So this kind of adds some understanding to the analogy. This party is starting, and it's not going to wait on you if you're not ready. You're not going to be allowed to join late either. So that's a little bit about kind of the context of the analogy. There is so much in here. Um, almost every word can be related to something. So Christ says the kingdom of heaven is like the bridal party. He's talking about the church. It's the kingdom of heaven. Uh, the bridegroom is Christ. Um, a lot of times we, we talk about the, the church being the bride of Christ. Um, but in this case, this analogy is talking about the, uh, all, all of us, basically. We are all part of this, this ceremony if we're ready to join, if we're, if we're watchful. Uh, this midnight arrival, this is the second coming. Um, the wise virgins were church members who were prepared. The foolish ones were also church members, unprepared. Their lamps represent their faith or their works. Um, oil represents their works, uh, but also the spirit. The oil, um, talk about the spirit healing and soothing. There's a lot of applications of oil that, that liken it unto the spirit of the Lord. Um, the tarrying bridegroom, he, he's late, he's delayed. They don't know when he's coming. We don't know when the second coming is. <clears throat> uh, but whenever, whenever they shout, say, he's here, come on, come, come to us, the, the midnight cry, that's the call to judgment. But one of the interesting things I thought was that, that there were some that refused to give oil to the others. And they said it, it wouldn't work. We can't give you the oil. Or was it said, no, unless there would not be enough for us and you. But the, the fact is it wouldn't work to, to give the oil. And what we need to understand is that our merit is not transferable. We can't be at church and not be in it and involved in doing the work and expect that the rest of the church is going to carry us into heaven. It's not how it works. The foolish were, were excluded, and the unprepared will be rejected. Then they shut that door. And the party was going on, and they couldn't get in, and that's representing this impossibility of, of being saved at the last minute. It's just not going to work. It's not how it's supposed to be. So there's a lot in the, in the analogy here that's, that's pretty obvious, uh, being prepared. But it never really dawned on me before that the unprepared would also represent the faithful. I mean, they... They were sleeping. That's fine. Everybody was sleeping. But you don't go to sleep without, without being prepared. You don't, you don't live your life day to day and do your normal things that we do on earth without being prepared because it's dangerous. The call might come, and we won't be ready to answer it. Another very important thing is that, you know, having this oil, that's no big deal. That's a pretty easy, simple thing. And being prepared for Christ is not having oil, but it is not a hard thing. It is not beyond our reach to be watchful and be prepared and be ready. It's, it's a simple thing. It's an easy thing. It's our job. These bridesmaids had a job to be in this ceremony. They all had their lamps. They were all there ready, or at least they thought they were ready. Some were just careless, just didn't, didn't, 
worry too much about being prepared. And it bit them when they least expected it. And that can certainly be any of us. <clears throat> and as I said, that was fairly simple. It's familiar. It's an easy one to understand. And in the same fashion, so is this parable of the talents. We all know this one. Uh, Matthew 25, starting in verse 14. Jesus says, <coughs> For the kingdom of heaven is like a man traveling to a far country, who called his own servants and delivered his goods to them. And to one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his own ability. And immediately he went on a journey. Then he who had received the five talents went and traded with them and made another five talents. And likewise, he who had received the two gained two more also. But he who had received one went and dug in the ground and hid his Lord's money. After a long time, the Lord of those servants came and settled accounts with them. <clears throat> so he who had received the five talents came and brought five other talents, saying, Lord, you delivered to me five talents. Look, I've gained five more talents besides them. His Lord said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. He also, who had received two talents, came and said, Lord, you delivered me two talents. Look, I've gained two more talents besides them. His Lord said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Then the one... Then he who had received the one talent came and said, Lord, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. And I was afraid and went and hid your talent in the ground. Look, there you have what is yours. But his Lord answered and said to him, You wicked and lazy servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. So you ought to have deposited my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I would have received back my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has ten talents. For to everyone who has, more will be given, and he will have abundance. But from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the unprofitable servant into the outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Very familiar one. Um, it's not new information, I think, to most of us to explain the talent. Uh, but briefly put, it's a very large sum of money. And even this poor guy that got only one talent to work with, he was given something that's hard for us to imagine. Uh, I can't really be exact on what a talent means in today's dollars, but it could be something like a million bucks. This is clearly not the sort of talent that we would call a, a unique skill, you know, a, our ability to, to draw or whatever kind of talents you can think of. This is specifically talking about a huge sum of money. And it's kind of a weird thing for us to consider, too. Billionaire goes on vacation for a long time, so he gives tens of millions of dollars to his hired help. And it isn't clear in the text that the money was entrusted to them for the express purpose of having them go out and do some business with it to grow it, but that becomes clear at the end. It's also pretty over-the-top to imagine taking $10 million and in some span of time turning it into $20 million and then handing it back to the boss. 
That's, that's pretty crazy. But Jesus was intentional in that because he's making a point, several points actually, but one being that using the gifts that we get from the Lord to do his will is going to pay returns bigger than we can expect. We can't make that kind of thing happen. Only, only the gifts from God and doing his will is going to return those amazing, those amazing values. Um, recall the parable in Matthew 18 about the servant who owed 10,000 talents. He was forgiven the debt, and then he would not forgive others with very minor debts to him. There again, a sum of money is used that's almost unimaginable. I mean, how could you rack up $100 billion in debt, assuming a talent's worth a million bucks? The point there is that the debt is beyond what we're able to pay, so we can understand the use of exaggerated values in this parable as well. But just like the, uh, the wedding party there, uh, beyond just understanding that analogy, there's some really weighty lessons for us here. Uh, for one, let's think about work. You know, God created us to serve him, and that entails work. <clears throat> you contrast this with the attitude of, of being saved and then just kind of relaxing because you got it made. Um, I read a pretty, a pretty pointed statement about this, and, and the guy said it's, it's as if a lot of Christians today see their salvation as simply a bus ticket to heaven, and they're just sitting on the bench patiently waiting for that bus. We are called to work, uh, both in the work of the church but also to make a living. It's been that way since Adam. And I don't know about you, but I really feel a great deal of satisfaction when I have a job well done. And I think it's because it's in our nature to feel that way. And by the way, God designed our nature. So uh, one of the points here is you know, we're intended to work. We're intended to, to be productive and, and use our gifts for the Lord. <clears throat> Another big consideration is where those gifts come from where our talents come from. In this case, I'm making a play on words. I mean, specifically talents, whatever skills you may have. Those are gifts from God. But they come with the expectation that we use them. In a broader sense, just like money here, it's not just talents, it's not just money, it's anything that we have in this life that's good. God is the source of that. And so again, that poor guy that only received one talent, he was getting a gift from his master that was more than he'd be able to get on his own. God provides... And we are not intended to passively sit on what he's given us. Ephesians 2 and 10 says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And now this verse may not strike you as one relative to, to work, um, but with the, with the gifts we've received, it, it should. That's, it's imperative that we know that we're made to do good works and that we are well equipped to do so through his gifts. <clears throat> and though we're made to, to do these works, another lesson here is that we're not created equal. You know, the master in this parable gave according to each's abilities. Uh, society might come after me for saying that we're not all equal because that's kind of the new thing now striving for equality it's it's one of those things shaping the world today uh don't get me wrong i'm for that um you know equality socially that that's important 
that's besides the point. We cannot ignore basic truths about ourselves. We're all different. Diversity is part of God's design. Now, that fact is not necessarily what's important here. It's the fact that one servant making a 10-talent profit and another servant making a two-talent profit were rewarded equally. They both did what they could with the talents they have. They were different. They were diverse. They had different abilities. But the the one that turned the huge profit, the the biggest profit, the one that had the most output from from what he was given and what he was able to do, got the exact same reward as, as the other guy that worked hard at it. The Lord's words to them were identical. <clears throat> they took what their master gave them. They were diligent. They used it according to his will. They both enjoyed immense blessings as a reward. Why did the master give all three of them an equal portion? Well, that's not for me to answer, honestly. You know, we're all diverse. We have different gifts because God made us that way. And he probably knows better than to hand me 10 million bucks and expect something good to come out of that. I just can't see that ending very well. But I am no doubt blessed with more than I can achieve on my own, as we all are, and we are expected to use those blessings for good. <coughs> Our own selfish interests are probably a, a, one of the reasons why we're not all blessed with insane amounts of money. Uh, the guy who set on this one talent, that doesn't really describe somebody being selfish and and keeping the money or anything like that. Uh, But the two who were richly rewarded, they sure had plenty of opportunity to use that for their own interest, even if just a little bit of it. Look, Lord, I I brought you back nine more talents instead of 10. Pocket a million dollars. That would be selfish. They didn't do that, and they succeeded. They worked unselfishly for the master, just as we should. And, well, that works. Uh, finally, I think laziness is another reason, another lesson to be learned from this. He specifically told the servant that he was wicked and lazy. And understanding that the master here in his parable is the Lord, it's a safe bet to say that he was in, indeed being lazy rather than actually thinking that hiding the money was a good idea. You know, you could read that and say, well, maybe he just he really was afraid. He just wanted to bury it, and that's, that was the safe bet. Um, but the Lord said he was lazy. He knows our hearts and our intents. So this is just a case of a miscalculation where he thought he could get away with doing a little bit and he would have a good enough excuse, but he thought wrong. <clears throat> Depositing the money in the bank is almost as easy. And uh, if he just wanted to, to, to do a little bit and just be lazy about it, there's... There's, there's things he could have done a little bit better. I kind of doubt it would have, it would have really resulted in a, in a rich reward, even if he did just give the guy some interest. <clears throat> but there's a lot of examples in the Bible calling out laziness. Here's one, 2 Thessalonians 3 and 10. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. You know, we've discussed this, and it's not talking about people unable to work or, or anything like that. It's just it's laziness. Um, another one's Proverbs 10, 4 and 5 says, Lazy hands bring poverty, but hardworking hands lead to wealth. Whoever harvests during the summer acts wisely, but the son who sleeps during the harvest is disgraceful. 
Proverbs 12, 24 says, work hard and become a leader. Be lazy and become a slave. And we're going to be held accountable. And we need to take very seriously what it is that we have been given and how we should be using it. And just like the brides, the, the, the bridal party, the lamps, it's not hard. We just need to not be lazy. We need to put forth the effort. <clears throat> Jesus then moves on to describing judgment. And he says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them one from another, as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And he will set the sheep on his right hand and the goats on his left. Um, now, the nations here, he's not talking about, like, governments. He's not dividing up kingdoms or anything like that. It's, it's just like in the Great Commission to go out and preach to all nations. He's talking about people from everywhere. All the people are going to be gathered before him, and he'll separate them one from another, just like a shepherd dividing sheep from the goats. Then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, you gave me food. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in, or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. You know, so these, these people are honest. They're not going, ooh, he thinks we did something that we didn't. We're just going to ride this out. They're saying, Lord, what do you mean? You know, we, we tried to serve you, but I don't remember seeing you. And obviously, they were serving him because they were doing the things that he commands. Serving one another. Then he'll also say to those on the left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not take me in. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they, probably feeling wrongfully accused, it says, Then they will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger? or naked, or sick in prison, and did not minister to you. Then he will answer them, saying, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. You know, as Jesus is describing coming and judging, I think it's important to keep the context of the, of the prior verses in mind here. We've just been taught that we don't know when he's coming, but we should always be watching and always be prepared. It's not hard to do, but we have to do it. Many faithful Christians are unprepared, you know, without lamp for the oil, or oil for the lamp, or just waiting for the bus. <clears throat> Regarding that, you know, rereading that last verse there. <coughs> and these, the ones who did not do the work, even if they were otherwise faithful, will go away into everlasting punishment. Hell, in other words. But the righteous go into eternal life. 
heaven, joy for eternity. It doesn't get much more black and white than that, heaven or hell. It seems like, you know, from a worldly point of view, that there should be degrees of reward and degrees of punishment. But that's, that's one of those points that's made clear in these parables, uh, in the parable of the talents. You either get a huge reward or you are going to regret it. It's, it's going to be bad, weeping and gnashing of teeth. It doesn't depend on the gifts that you've been given, your talents, what you're able to do. It only depends on, on how you use those gifts. You know, that black and white view of things is a pretty common theme in the Bible. He separates the sheep from the goats, the wheat from the chaff, etc. Point is, you're either one or the other. There are not those degrees of reward and degrees of punishment that seem reasonable to many of us. That earlier context also teaches us to be ready and watching as well as to make the effort, but they are parables. You know, minding your lamp or day trading with the boss's money is not literally the work that we're called to do. But the work is simple. You know, last month, uh, my chapter was Matthew 22, and we studied some of the wisdom of Jesus versus these efforts of the Sadducees and the Pharisees that were trying to, to trap him in a, in a trick question. And all these people knew the law of Moses very well, and I still don't really know what answer they hoped to get out of Jesus that they could use against him. But the final the question they asked him was to ask Jesus, which is the greatest commandment? And his answer there in, in Matthew 22 and verse 37, Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. To love the Lord and to love your neighbor. You know, we've got a lot of commandments, but you cannot deny, you, you cannot do any of them without love first being there. I mean, can you really obey the gospel without loving the Lord? Would confessing Jesus being your Savior actually do anything for you if you didn't mean it? Just saying the words out loud, that's not confessing it. That's just, I don't know, that's lying, I guess. To love is so foundational, literally all the law and the prophets hang on it. Well, what's the difference between loving and serving? Yeah, I suppose slaves are compelled to serve, even if they hate the one they serve. And employees are compelled to serve in exchange for money. But when you do love the Lord, you serve him. That's part of loving him. And when you love your neighbor, you serve him or her. That's part of loving him. And so, look at these verses again. Then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me to drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. That's not all-encompassing. That's not every, every bad situation somebody could be in that you would have the opportunity to help somebody with in. But what that is is a very good, clear description of acts of love. And when Jesus judges us, he's going to be perfect and righteous in that judgment. And servitude coming from love is not going to be confused by Jesus with servitude because we're compelled to do things. 
while we're trying to skate by or whatever. He's going to know our hearts. And that's what it boils down to. So you see, it's really easy. And it's really urgent. We don't know the day or the hour. But we will at some point be judged. And it's not going to matter how many talents we're given. All that matters is that we act on our love and serve. If you need to make a change in your life and get yourself prepared, it starts with accepting Jesus. If you're already there, but you just realize that you're sitting at the bus stop waiting and you haven't been doing the simple things like keeping the oil in the lamp, then don't hesitate. Make that change. And right now is a perfect opportunity to start that. So we invite you to come up, whether you need to obey the, the gospel or if there's anything that we can do for you as we stand and sing, come to the front row.